Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 2 Peter? We will be in the second chapter of 2 Peter as we continue here in our series uh, through Peter's second letter to the New Testament churches. Uh, as you find your place and get settled uh, in this morning, I want to highlight something that is in your connector. There's a good bit of information on, on one of the inside pages of your connector about a ladies' conference coming up uh, in just over a month here at uh, Nansman River. This is being put on by our women's ministry here. A number of ladies went uh, a couple of months ago to Rwanda, our, Afri our uh, East African missionary partners there, and did uh, a couple of days on over a, a few different occasions there doing ladies' conferences through the book of uh, Ruth. And they came back and they said, why in the world would we go there and do it but not do it here? And so this sounds like a great plan. So they've put this together for a Saturday's ladies' conference for high school age uh, young ladies all the way through uh, senior adults. And so ladies, we hope that you'll participate. Information in there about how you need to register. And yes, you do need to register as they're going to be planning some food and some other things. Uh, and so we look forward to that opportunity coming in just uh, several weeks here at our church. It's something you can invite your friends to, uh, let other people know that is, that's happening here uh, at, at our church. And we look forward to seeing what God does uh, through that conference uh, in a few weeks. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 4. I'll read down through the first half of verse 10, another great example of the verses aren't inspired. The verse really does end, uh, and a new thought begins at the, in the second part of verse 10. So let's look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his, soul, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the time that we've been able to spend as the gathered body of Christ in this place worshiping you. Thank you, God, for a congregation that loves to sing together, to praise the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to honor you alone as God as we raise our voices. Thank you, God, that we can gather to do that. And now as we turn our attention to your word, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate your words into our hearts. Guide us, we pray, in all righteousness. As we consider how in history and in the present and in days to come, you will both rescue the righteous and judge the wicked. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
much of our entire lives are based off of a deductive principle known as the if-then statement. If I do this, then this will happen. You maybe have not ever even considered the fact that so much of your life is based on this. It is ingrained into our DNA. Here's how I know this. Being a church that is immensely blessed with babies, at some point this morning, a baby will cry. Probably in this room, which by the way is never a bad thing. I would always rather be in a church with crying babies than a church with no babies at all. And why does a baby cry? Because ingrained in that baby's DNA, they know this from the moment of birth. If I cry, then that woman is going to come take care of me. (laughs) She's going to feed me. She's going to change my soiled diaper. She's going to comfort me. And we grow out of that very basic understanding of if then to adulthood where we are conditioned to understand that if I go to work on time and do the job that they've asked me to do, then they will pay me to do the job that they have hired me to do. We teach this to our children as they come through elementary and middle and high school. If you will work hard and study, then you will get good grades. It is ingrained into nearly every transaction of our lives. And Peter, here in this text, relies on this very basic deductive argument that if one thing is true, then something else is also true. And we will see that argument this morning here in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. The main idea of today's sermon is that God will graciously rescue those in Christ and righteously judge the wicked. While we will spend some time this morning in the if statements that Peter actually makes that take up the bulk of this passage, the true main idea of the sermon is actually the then. I'm telling you what the then is before we even see the if argument. God will graciously rescue those in Christ and righteously judge the wicked. But we need to begin with Peter's if, which shows us the historic pattern of judgment and rescue. Contained in these first several verses of this paragraph in 2 Peter are three examples of God's judgment and rescue from ages past. They all three take place in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now, I'm going to show you where they take place in Genesis. We're going to look at both Peter's argument and Jude, a companion letter uh, to 2 Peter, uh, probably a letter that Peter had access to as he was writing this letter. I'm also going to show you in Genesis where we see these events take place, but I'm not going to have time to spend uh, on each of these subjects very long. So if you are new with us and you would like more information about these three events that I'm going to talk about or that Peter talks about and I'm going to explain. In the fall of 2020, so almost two years ago, I was preaching through the Old Testament book of Genesis and dealt with each one of these events in detail. You can go to nazwinriver.com slash sermons. 
can search there and find the Genesis series and be able to listen to in more detail those sermons there because I treat each one of these uh, in its own sermon. But let's look at these three events that Peter relies on to demonstrate this pattern of historic judgment and rescue. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, again, this is an incomplete thought, really, because it's just the if version. And we're going to see the word if appear numerous times in these verses. So each one of these are, are just half of the argument that he's making, but he's looking back on these historic events and saying, if God did this, the first historic event is actually the most difficult one for us to understand. And this is God actually judging sinful angels, that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, Peter says, committing them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept future tense until the judgment. So this is something that happened in the past, but also has a future result, that judgment is coming on these angels. Jude, writing in his letter, writes about this same this same event, and he says in Jude verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains and under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So a, a general description of the angel's sin is given to us here in Jude 6 where they left their position of authority. They stepped down from what God had created them to be and did something else. Now there's two options for us here for a, that, that it's fine if, if you take a different one than I am. The, the first is that what Peter and Jude are thinking about is the prehistoric fall of Satan and uh, his minion of angels who fall with him. That is, that is a possibility, although it's not the, the, what I think Peter and Jude are both describing. The event that I think Peter and Jude are describing is actually described for us in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, that chapter of Scripture begins this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, I told you when I preached this in, in Genesis 6 a couple of years ago that I began the week, I actually went back and watched part of this sermon because uh, I wanted to make sure what I had said in here. I try to be as consistent as I can. And I had began the week thinking that I was going to preach Genesis 6 one way, but through my studies kind of changed my position about halfway through the week and ended up preaching in a different way. And the way that I ended up preaching is still where I am today and still what I think both Peter here in 2 Peter and Jude and Jude 6 are, are describing. And that is that these actually were, the sons of God in Genesis 6, were fallen angels who were overcome by lust towards the daughter of men. And in a way that our modern minds may not be able to fully understand, took them as their wives. And so the specific description of the angel's sin is that they took on human form and had sexual relations with humans, with human women, against the, the design of God. 
against the plan of God, against the will of God. And because of this, God judged them and has placed them in a, a placed them in what, what is described here as chains, awaiting a day of judgment. But the Lord does not judge the righteous and the unrighteous indiscriminately. And in the next two examples, we're going to see specific examples of the righteous that God saves. But in this first example, it's implied that there were some angels who were overcome by this lust and sinned in this way, but then there were others who did not. That there were angels that did not sin and stayed, if we were to borrow Jude's language, in their position of authority. They stayed in the way that God had made them, in the position that God had given them. So we see this angelic judgment, this, this judgment on a spiritual level. And that's where Peter begins. But he continues, if, another if statement, if he did not spare the ancient world. But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, what Peter is describing here is something that's far more familiar to us that begins in Genesis 6 and carries over for a couple of more chapters. And this is the, the ancient world flood where God judges mankind, sending a flood to destroy the earth, but saves Noah and his family. We read in, again in Genesis 6, just after the description of what happens with the angels, we pick up with what happens in Noah's day. We're told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was evil, were on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What's expressed here in Genesis 5 or Genesis 6, this first part of Genesis 6, in introducing the Noah story is wickedness that is spread around the world. And that, that, that God is grieved in his heart. And we're even told here that there is a, that there is a, a, a picture of, of repentance within God, that God is sorry that he did something, that God regrets that he did something. Now, I can't read this without mentioning something to you. And that is God is unchanging. So we shouldn't read this as if God was in heaven one day and his mind was changed or his heart was changed. The repentance of God here is him expressing a different attitude or action within time. Remember, God exists outside of time, but he works within time of his creation. And so this is not because he was surprised or somehow learned new information in the day of Noah. It is because that a new attitude or action reveals to us, mankind, something about God that better helps us see his character in relation to the events that are taking place. So don't think of God being in heaven as some kind of wishy-washy, you know, I, I feel one way this day or one uh, a different way this day, often as we do. God is unchanging and wickedness cannot be hidden from him. And he will judge and he does judge. We're told in verse 17 of Genesis 6, for behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
but he also rescues. Verse 18 of Genesis 6, but I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So this is the pattern that, that is established, the judgment of the unrighteous, but the rescue of the righteous. Then Peter turns his attention to a third event in verses 6 through 8. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So this fast forwards in the story of Genesis to Genesis 19 after God has made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation. And as Abraham comes into the promised land, he brings his nephew Lot with him. And God so richly blesses that family that they actually divide themselves. And Lot ends up going to what seemed to be the the better part of the promised land where Abraham goes to what seemed to be the, the less good part of the promised land. But what Lot didn't understand was some very wicked people were living in that part of the promised land and he ends up going and living in two of the largest cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, of that portion of the land. And what happens? God comes and is gonna judge these people for their sin. And he actually sends messengers both to Abraham to tell him that judgment is coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but then ultimately those messengers go there to the city to rescue Lot out of it. And here's what we read in Genesis 19. Before they lay down, this is the messengers, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Peter has described this for us as the sensual conduct of the wicked. And I I don't have to describe in detail what's happening here for you to understand the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're told in verse 15 of Genesis 19, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughter by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him and brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The sun has risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the, sun rain, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Great was the destruction of these wicked cities. But also great was the mercy of God on Lot to deliver him. I love the description of how these messengers of the Lord, while Lot tarries on this final day in Sodom, drag him out. The rescuing hand of God, merciful to even drag Lot out of the city so that he may be rescued. Now, I said I don't need to describe the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm going to be gentle here. I recognize there are children in the room. But there are some that have sought to dismiss the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah as something else. 
But it's important, the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is important for our understanding of 2 Peter. We, we've already seen in 2 Peter that, that the false teachers that Peter has now turned his attention to in this second chapter are those that were following their own sensuality. So there's a reason that he's using this as an example. Because these cities had completely given themselves over to sensuality. Jude gives us even more detail. He makes it even more clear. He says in Jude verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I was reading somebody just recently. And they said the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not sexual immorality. It was not unnatural desire, but actually a lack of hospitality. What? Now listen, we should be hospitable people. And I could go to lots of places in scripture and make the claim that the church should be hospitable, that we should show incredible hospitality towards people. I believe that with all my heart. But I'm not going to go to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to make that point. Because the reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah is written for us in Scripture. Because they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And the false teachers in Peter's day were, were teaching in such a way that it caused people to join in the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, all of these if statements, right? Right? If God imprisoned fallen angels who sinned, and if God judged the ancient world while rescuing Noah, and if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah while rescuing Lot, then. Now, just one quick note here about these verses before we move on to the then statement. Peter and Jude, writing to the New Testament church, speaks of these events as real historical events. And it matters for the if-then argument. And so church, while it may be unpopular for us to do so, we should look at these events and affirm, while we may not fully understand how these things took place, we should affirm that they did. And it matters that they did. It matters that in both the spiritual and physical realm, God judged the wicked and rescued the righteous. So we get to the, finally, the then in verse nine. Then, where we're shown the promise of rescue. Then, Peter says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. <laughs> if God judged angels this way, and if God judged the ancient world this way, and if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah this way, and if God rescued Noah and his family, and if God rescued Lot and his family, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. If God can do all that, hear me, Christian, God can rescue you. He can rescue you. Doesn't matter what you're facing. It's, it's why I don't get all concerned with, with culture war because none of it matters. God can rescue us. God is able to judge the wicked and to rescue the righteous. He has been doing it generation after generation. He will continue to do it. 
The Lord knows how to rescue. And I think this is the most important question of these verses, the godly from trials. And if God knows how to rescue the godly from trials, then we have to ask this question, who is the godly? Because certainly you want to be in that category, but maybe you look in your life and you're like, that's not me. I'm not godly. Who is the godly? Well, Paul helps us with this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, and being found in him, him being Jesus, not having a righteousness, he's talking about himself, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that from God that depends on faith. So who is, who is the godly? The godly are those who aren't depending on their own works of righteousness because our own works of righteousness could never save us. But the godly are those who are depending on the righteousness of Christ imparted to their lives by faith in Jesus alone. And this is what Paul claims. Paul, who knew the law better than anybody in this room. Paul, who had spent most of his life obeying the law to a level that we could never even understand, says, none of that made me righteous, but only faith in Jesus. So who are the godly that Peter is writing about in verse 9? The godly are those who have a righteousness that is not their own, but is in Christ. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, what happens is he takes our sin, our wickedness, our unrighteousness. I've used all of those words today. They're synonymous. They all mean the same thing. It's when we fall short of the standard that God has set. And God takes that, puts it on Christ on the cross, and then a great transaction happens and he gives to us the righteousness of Christ. So who are the godly? If you are in Christ today, my friend, it is you. It's you. We are the godly that the Lord knows how to rescue from trial. So then how does he rescue us from trial? He does so both temporally and eternally. The temporal rescue from trial is the rescue from sin in a, in a temporal way. Not necessarily the consequences from our sin, if you sinned either grievously, let's just talk about grievous sin. If you grievously sinned in some way, either before or after coming to know the Lord, you may still today and for the rest of your life be dealing with the temporal consequences of those sin. But for those who are in Christ, he gives you rescue from sin. If you'll just rely on him for it. This is the way Paul writes to the church at Corinth about this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember what we saw in the first sermon in 2 Peter, in, in 2 Peter 1.3, is divine powers granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that God has given us everything that we need to endure. Because that's the call of 2 Peter, isn't it? To persevere, to endure all the more, faithful to the end. This is the call of the Christian life, to follow Jesus no matter our circumstances, no matter the temptation, no matter the trial. We follow Jesus to the end. And God's given us everything that we need for that, including to battle temptation in our lives. So verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says no temptation has 
has overtaken or has seized you except that which is common to man means that we don't get to go, well, preacher, you just don't know what it's like to be tempted in the way that I'm tempted. I may not, but Jesus does. Because <laughs> we're told he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. And not only does he know, but he gives to you everything that you need to endure that temptation. Now, something that's helpful for us from the original language that this was written in. The words in our Bible most often translated temptation and translated trial in the original language was the same word. Now, English translators will often use temptation or they'll use trial depending on the context of the context clues of the surrounding verses and they'll pick one of those two. But in truth, it's the same word. So when you're, in most cases, when you're reading in the New Testament, you see the word temptation, you see the word trial, it's the same thing. So it's our trials and our temptations that God, these temporal trials and temptations that God is rescuing us from. And James says this about our trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and, the steadfa and, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I say, wait, I thought I was promised rescue from trials, but James is saying, I'm gonna go through those trials. Absolutely, you're gonna go through those trials. And by going through those trials, God is actually rescuing you. So what? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, look at it like this. If we think the coming to Christ is all about the easy life and the easy road and having everything that we've ever wanted and always being well and always being prosperous and always having a full bank account. If we think that's what following Christ is, then anytime we face trials, we're very confused. But that's not what following Christ is about. Following Christ is about becoming like Christ. And so the rescue from trial is not that you don't deal with the trial. It's that God gives you everything in the midst of the trial to deal with it. And through the trial actually makes you more like Jesus. That's James's argument. That we let steadfastness have its full effect so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? It means to be like Jesus. So when we go through trial, it's a good thing. When we're able to stand up against temptation in our lives, it's a good thing. It's actually temporal rescue because it's the work of God in our lives to allow us to endure. And as we endure, we become more like Jesus. But rescue isn't only temporal. Rescue is also eternal. And James makes this argument for us. Same chapter of James where he's talked about temporal trial changing your life. He concludes by saying this in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, future tense, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Listen, James is saying the same thing that Peter by the way, James, one of the first books of the New Testament to, to be written. Second uh, Peter, one of the later books in the New Testament to be written. And they're saying the same thing. They're calling Christians to persevere. They're calling Christians to follow Jesus to the end. Because what awaits us is the crown of life. 
that God has promised to those who love him. The eternal rescue from our sin is the crown of life, eternal life with Jesus, free from sin and sickness and sorrow and pain and death, wrought by sin in this world. That is rescue in eternity. But he doesn't, the, the, the then statement doesn't end there. The then state can, continues with the surety of judgment, judgment now and judgment in eternity. He's looked back upon judgment. Now he's going to speak of judgment in the present and future tense. He concludes verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Judgment of the unrighteous is also temporal and eternal, just like the rescue of the righteous is temporal and eternal. In Jude verse 8, again, companion verse to this, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. You see, the unrighteous in Peter and Jude's context, this narrow view that they have of these false teachers that they are writing about, are those who defiled the flesh. They're those who, who are rejecting authority. Jude says they're relying on dreams. They're ones who would deny what Peter said at the end of first Peter, uh, Second Peter 1, that, that the scripture must be our authority. They're rejecting the authority of scripture and they're rejecting the authority of the apostles, ultimately blaspheming the glorious ones. Jude says, Peter said they, they, they blaspheme God. They've been blaspheming on the gospel of God. So in their, their narrow view is of, the, is of the false teachers, but there's a broader context, and that is also those who are following them. That judgment isn't just coming on false teachers within the church, although it certainly is. Judgment is coming upon all of the unrighteous, and it is now on them. Paul talks about one of the ways that, that the, the judgment of sin this, this is sitting on the unrighteous now in Romans chapter 1, where he's beginning this argument for all have sinned and all need Christ. And he says this, starting in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the, the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So let's just think about that. Just hold that in your brain for a minute. Think about it in context of what we've seen about rescue. That rescue in, a, in the temporal sense happens for Christians because God gives us everything that we need to be able to stand under temptation, endure trial so that we become like Jesus. Likewise, the temporal judgment of the wicked is that God allows them to just remain in their wickedness. It may seem as if they're enjoying their wickedness, 
It may seem as if they're reveling in their rebellion against God, but know this, judgment sits on them even now. This is the argument that Paul is making, that part of the temporal judgment of God is that God just gives them over to their sin. That God just turns them over to to do things that were never meant to be done. That God just allows them to to wallow in the, the mud and filth of their own wickedness. Reaping what they sow. Heaping over and again the judgment of God on their lives. But then eternally... There is also eternal judgment of the wicked. Romans 2 verse 5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of wrath is coming. The day of wrath is coming to those who are not in Christ, who are still dead in their trespasses and sin. God is, as Peter writes, keeping them under punishment until future tense, so present tense, that he's keeping them there, future tense until the day of judgment. And one of the things that we're going to see as we keep moving through 2 Peter is about these false teachers is that they were denying a day of judgment was coming. They were denying that Jesus was going to return. And mind you, if Jesus isn't going to return and there is no day of judgment, then really there should just be a free-for-all in the world. If you don't believe that Jesus is returning one day to judge the living and the dead, then by all means, go live however you want to because there's going to be no eternal consequence for your sin. But if Jesus is coming back, if Jesus is going to do what time and again Scripture promises that he will do, the wrath of God in his righteous judgment will be revealed against the unrighteous, then woe to you. We're still living in your sin. But I plead with you, take rescue today because Jesus offers it to you. So what? Have you found rescue from sin in Christ alone or are you under the Lord's righteous judgment? If all of these things are true, then God will rescue the righteous and judge the wicked. And the question for all of us that we must ask is, which one of those am I? And all of that depends upon your relationship with Jesus. All of it hinges on who is Jesus to you. If Jesus is just a good teacher to you, if Jesus is just some mythical figure that shows us good things that we could do, if Jesus is anything other than Lord and Savior in your life, then know this, judgment is upon you, my friend. But if you have come to him in saving faith, then you are in Christ and you have both been rescued by God and will be rescued by God. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. People inside, outside the church know this verse. But all too often people inside the church don't think about the other verses that are around it. So I want to read it in its context because it helps us here. We'll start with that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Present tense, now. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Then he sums it for us at the end of that chapter in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The mission of the son is simple, rescue. This is why God the Father sent Jesus the son to rescue his people from their sin. The rescuer, though, does not remove the judgment. The judgment remains on those who he has not rescued, but he provides a means of escape for you. And if you will come to Jesus in faith and repentance, here's what he promises. He promises rescue from your sin. He promises to give you everything that you need to stand up under temptation and trial in this world. And he promises you a crown of life in eternity with him if you will believe today. Because if you do not, you are under judgment. Oh, church, isn't it good to know that we've been rescued? Oh, church, isn't it good in our hearts to know that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness? Isn't it good to know that God is making us into the image of his son? Isn't it good to know that we await for us eternal life with Jesus our Lord? Isn't it good to believe that Jesus has rescued us from sin and certain death? His mission was to come and to rescue. Our mission then is to proclaim that rescue to those who are perishing. If that's good news to you, then it should be good news to the people around you. And the only way they're going to know that good news is if we who are rescued look back into those who have yet to be rescued and say, come and be rescued in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for rescue. We thank you, God, that you redeemed us, even though we did not deserve it, even though you did not have to do it. Because of the great love with which you loved us, being merciful towards us sinners, you have rescued us and provide everything that we need to persevere in this life. Father, we pray that you'll awaken hearts to their need of rescue now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you've heard this call for rescue today, you say, I need that. I've been relying on my own way. I, I, I need that. I am still under judgment. At the end of the service, I'll be out in the lobby with our Connect team. Will you come find me? Let's talk about how you can put your faith in Jesus, and how you can follow him by his strength for the rest of your life. Church family, for the rest of us who are redeemed, what we do, how we respond now is we worship him who sent rescue in our redeemer for us. Stand with me as we respond.